topic, and we found that. Well, I, I think I turned me on up there. I believe. Oh, there it comes. All right, we had a great topic, and we found that God has set a special day aside for us as a sign where we are to worship Him. Do you remember why we are to worship God? Was it because He forgave us of our sins? No. Are we supposed to worship God because He, raised, he, he was raised from the grave? No. How about our worship God because He's coming back to take us home? Is that the reason we're supposed to worship Him? No. Why are we supposed to worship Him on the Sabbath day? Because He created us. So, if this is your first Sabbath to worship with God as our Creator, I want to be one of the first to say Happy Sabbath to you. And thank you for joining us, whether you're here with us in physically or you're watching online. Happy Sabbath. Uh, now, if you were with us on Wednesday night, I shared a little bit of news with you about my family. Um, on Wednesday, we found out that my daughter had tested positive for COVID. Um, so I asked for prayers, and God has answered those prayers. Thankfully, my daughter had gotten vaccinated, and... Today, she sent me a text and said, I no longer have a cough. My sore throat is gone. I can breathe again. My energy's coming back. And we serve a God who still answers prayer. Praise the Lord for that. Ah. Now, before I get started, there's one more thing I want to do today. I have some special guests here. All right, some friends of mine, Lonnie and Janine Duncan, they're, they're right here near the front. I just want to say hi to you, and they are, are very, very special to me. I don't know that I've ever told you guys this, but um, if you kind of want to know what my dad looks like, okay, Lonnie's not my dad, but he reminds me a lot of my dad. Not only in his physical look, but how he acts and everything else. And about two years ago, I lost my mom. Uh, fortunately, I still have my dad. But if I were able to choose parents, it would be Lonnie and Janine. So I am very thankful to have you here with us and worshiping with us today. And uh, we are just excited about it. Today we are going to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Revelation chapter 6, and we are going to fly through this chapter very, very quickly uh, because I want you to see how prophecy is structured. So we are going to move quickly through it, and we are going to probably raise as many questions for you as we answer. Um, but we're going to go just as quickly as we can. And as is my custom, I'd like to start with a word of prayer. Is that all right? All right. Let's, Heavenly Father, we are excited that we are able to open the pages of the Bible prophecy and actually understand. We believe that when we read your we're not just reading another book. We're hearing the voice of the Almighty God, our Savior and Creator. Father, I ask that you will forgive my sins and make me fit to speak. And again, we wish that when Jesus speaks, that we will open our hearts and we will follow. In the name of Jesus, amen. Today, we're going to start at the very beginning of the book of Revelations. It's already something we have looked at. Let's start again at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. This is uh, the beginning of Revelation. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show unto his servants things that must shortly come to pass. Now, this is a very important topic for us, concept. It's something that a lot of modern readers tend to miss. In the book of Revelation, God is showing John things that will happen in the future. But according to this verse right here, right, when are these future events going to start happening? 
shortly. This is important. The prophecies of Revelation are already being fulfilled way back in John's day. This book is not just about our future. It was also about John's future too. The Revelation isn't just about the last few years of earth's history. It's about the whole expanse of time from John's day all the way down to the second coming. The fulfillment of Revelation actually began almost 2,000 years when John wrote the book of Revelation. That's the way most of Daniel and Revelation are structured. It's to work right. The predictions are filled historically. And more often than not, the fulfillment of prophecy actually began in the day of the prophet and continues down to the very end of time. For example, with our statue when we were studying Daniel 2, the head of gold symbolized what? <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. It started in Daniel's day, right? And it's going to continue all the way down until that stone smashes the image and the kingdom of God, of God is established. So that means that some of Revelation has already been fulfilled today. In fact, we've already had nearly 2,000 years of fulfillment under our belts already. The prophecies began their fulfillment shortly, all the way back in Dan or John's day, and they covered the world history to the very end. Generally speaking, that is how the big prophecies in Daniel and Revelation work. Now, we are going to do something that is probably going to frustrate some of you. All right? We are going to skip through two books of, of Revelation in about three minutes. All right? And I'm doing this because I want to establish the structure of, of prophecy with you. In Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven letters addressed to seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are real cities in Asia Minor, or what we would call modern-day Turkey today. They are seven letters that are addressed to seven liberal Christian congregations lived in those cities. But over the centuries, serious Bible students have noticed some really amazing things about these. These actually seem to describe the entire history of Christianity. From the first century right up until the second coming of Christ. And these descriptions are absolutely perfect. So, for example, you've got Ephesus which describes the early apostolic church of the first century, a desirable, a pure church. And then you've got Smyrna, which was, is the crushed or the persecuted church, which represents Christians living through the persecutions of the Roman. And then you've got Pergamos, a church that begins to, to fragment and become weaker and weaker because the church begins to compromise on the original teachings of Christ. Then we come to Thyatira, a period in history when Christians really begin to misbehave. And most of Bible students, uh, students of Bible prophecy, understand that this is a time period referred to as the Dark Ages, a time when Christianity was anything but Christian. And then comes Sardis, a period in history when Christians begin to open Bibles again and return to the plain teachings of Scripture. And this roughly begins when you suddenly get Christian scholars from every conceivable background that are calling people back to their Bible. Then comes of Philadelphia, that launches a global movement. And, and it began Jesus around the world. And at the same time, during the first and the second 
awakening. They begin to teach that Jesus is coming soon. The name Philadelphia literally means brotherly love, and that is a pretty good description of the state of Christianity in the 1800s. And then comes the Laodicean. And unfortunately, it's a description of the last Christianity, a time when people profess to be godly, but they deny the power of their Christian faith. This is the movement that we are now, and the Bible describes it as a lukewarm Christianity. Now, what is absolutely amazing about Revelation 2 and 3 is Christians agree on what they represent. They were real, literal churches in the first century, and the absolutely apply to them, but they also apply to the Christianity as a whole. You know, Christians, we, we disagree on just about everything that Bible prophecy says, except for these two chapters. These two, two and three, there is widespread agreement across the Christians. These seven churches show the complete span of Christian history in advance. The descriptions fit perfectly, and the seven churches show us how the book of Revelation works. The prophecies begin their fulfillment shortly, all the way back in John's day. And they cover world history until it comes to a, the very end. Generally speaking, that is how big prophecies of Daniel and Revelation work. We have also talked about a principle we studied the other night. In Bible prophecy, seven is the number of what? Completion. Some of you read very well. So, good. It's the number of perfection. It is considered God's number. He created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. He made a perfect week and symbolized, and it is symbolized by the creation. There are seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven pl plagues. The seven is the number of completion and perfection. It is the number of God. This is a very important principle for us to remember. There's another principle we're going to need to, to help us understand, and that is the Bible often repeats itself. Prophecy often repeats itself, and it expands on what we've already studied. This is something we're going to look at in a couple of nights when we get into Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 is basically a repeat of the history in Daniel but from a slightly different perspective, it adds more details. You see, it turns out that God is a master teacher. He teaches one subject at a time, and like any good teacher, he repeats it several times, and each time he adds more and more details. That is what Revelation 6 is. Revelation 6 is a repeat of Daniel 2 and three, with more details. With that detail, with all that in the background there, are you ready to get into Revelation chapter 6? I hope so, because that's where we're going. Right. A couple of nights ago, we looked at Revelations 4 and 5, and we followed John into the throne room of heaven. It was an incredible scene. God is sitting on the throne and he's got this scroll or book in his hand. And it's a very important book because the angels want it open. But if you remember, they couldn't find anybody to open the book. Nobody was worthy to open the book. Not a single person. And then we have this lamb appears. The slain lamb of God. He is the one who is worthy who is this lamb? Jesus. Absolutely. And then we see that the lamb takes the scroll and he begins to open it one seal at a time. He opens, as he opens the seals, he reveals what is possible for his people. 
because of what he accomplished on the cross. Now I've got to warn you, as Jesus opens the seals, he's going to show us a very honest picture of the future. And that includes a very honest assessment of the Christian church. He, he's going to predict our very best moments, and unfortunately, he's also going to predict some of our worst moments. And you know, we wouldn't want it any other way, would we? I love the fact that God is open and he's honest. He doesn't sugar anything. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. Maybe you've noticed when God, the story of the Old Testament Israelites, he tells us the whole story, doesn't he? Both the happy parts and the parts where Israel went astray. And, and that's the same thing in the New Testament. When, when God's people uh, obey, he says, and when we go astray, he also gives us that information. He's going to give us both sides. When we get it right, and when we get it wrong. So, are you ready to look at Revelation 6? Revelation 6, starting with verse 1. Now, when I, I saw when the lamp opened one of the seals, I heard one preacher saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. I want you to notice the invitation here, right? God says, Come and see. That's why the book is called Revelation. God's not afraid for you to look inside. He is not a mystery. God is eager to show us what's inside his prophecies. Revelation continues and says, I looked and beheld a white set on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. We are, here we have a man riding white horse, and he's going out to conquer something, isn't he? So what is he conquering, and why is he riding a horse? Well, if you read the rest of Revelation, you'll find that the color white shows up all over the place. So what does the color white mean? Well, if you remember, you, you know that John borrows about two-thirds of his language from other parts of the Bible. See how the color, we need to look and see how the color white is used in other places. And I found a very interesting quote in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I want you to notice here that scarlet. Or, or the color red, is the color of blood. It's the color of death. It's the color of sin or purity. But white is the color of forgiveness, of purity. It's the color of holiness. That is why to this day, brides still like to wear the color white when they're getting married, right? That is why in Revelation 12, you see a woman dressed in white as symbol of God. Do I know the woman it symbolizes God's church? Well, it's pretty simple. All through our Bibles, God's people are described as the bride of Christ. In Ezekiel 16, God describes Israel as his bride. In Jeremiah 6, the Bible says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. A pure woman dressed in white is the pure church of God. And of course, then a woman dressed in scarlet would be the impure church of God. White is the color of forgiveness and purity. And that is why the first horse is white. It's a picture of the apostolic early church, the church first century of the gospel was alive in their hearts. These were the people that actually talked to Jesus, knew the disciples, and they knew the gospel message firsthand. They knew their mission, their purpose, and their calling. They were so passionate about Christ that they went out to conquer 
the entire world with the gospel message. Jesus told them to go to the other parts of the earth. They took him seriously. Colossians 1.23 says, The gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. Imagine preaching to the entire world in one lifetime. So let me ask you, how do you think the devil felt about that? Yeah, he already failed to conquer Christ on the cross. And Revelation 12 tells us that because Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven, that the devil turned his wrath against the Christian church to stop them from teaching the truth. He, he creates all kinds of trouble for them. Eventually, we have another horse that rides onto the screen. And we go back to Revelation 6, where we find second come and see another on it to take the earth, and that people should kill was given great. Color of purity, but red is the color of sin and bloodshed. Bible taken from the earth, and that is exactly what happened. The of the pagan Roman Empire suddenly fell on the Christians, and Rome grew to hate the followers of Jesus. And our history books are full of what the Romans did. We know that Emperor Nero had the Christians thrown into the arena to be torn apart by wild beasts. And according to some historians, on one occasion he actually had the Christians sewn into animal skins and then he tossed them to some wild dogs who ripped them to shreds. On another occasion, he dipped Christians in tar, and then he crucified them, and then he lit them on fire so they could be a nightlight for the meetings. It was a horrible time to be a, a Christian during that time period because the Romans absolutely hated the church. But it was also a historical time period where we find some of the most remarkable stories of faith. I don't know if you've ever heard of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. He was actually a disciple of John, the same one who wrote Revelation. At one point, the authorities took him to be burned alive because he refused to acknowledge the Roman emperor as a god. There was a Roman official at, present at the execution who couldn't understand and make sense of what Polycarp was doing. Oh man, he said, why do you want to do, why do you want to die? Just renounce Christ and you can live. What is the point of this? But the old man stood up. He stood up straight and he said this. Eighty-six years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You see, once you know Jesus, you're not really afraid of much, are you? You already know the future. You understand that God is going to win, and he's ultimately going to take care of everything. Even if you die, you're still going to be okay. So they lit the fire, and Polycarp died. It was the period of the red horse. Peace was taken from the earth, and the bloodshed was unbelievable. But you and I should understand that, that these people, they were willing to die so that you and I today have a chance to read this book. Amen? In A.D. 325, at the Council of Nicaea, they say that every delegate that was there was maimed. Some were missing eyes, hands, feet. Some were covered in scars. Every last one of them. 
It was one of the bloodiest periods in history, but the persecution failed to conquer Christianity because the love of God is always stronger than the forces of the devil. And that is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. One of them is calling us, wooing us with love, and the other uses force and deception. And in the end, force and deception always loses. They tried to stamp out the Christian church, but they couldn't extinguish the light of the gospel. Early, one of the early Christian fathers pointed out that the, the harder the Romans tried to wipe out the church, the faster the message of Jesus spread. He wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And he compared persecution to cutting grass. Believe it or not, he said, you cut it down, but it grows back thicker and stronger. Every time you killed one Christian, 20 others popped up to take their place. But of course, the big question is, why? Why did the Roman Empire hate the Christian's church? It wasn't like they were intolerant of other religions. You know, in Rome, you could practice any religion you wanted to except Christianity. Why? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Because all the other religions were willing to add Caesar to their list of gods. But Christians wouldn't do it. They couldn't acknowledge Caesar as a god because they only worshipped one god. And that one god said, you shall have no other gods before me. So the Christians stood out like a sore thumb. So the Romans, so to the Romans, even if they didn't actually believe that Caesar was a god, they still went and offered a pinch of incense. Just every once in a while, every once in a blue moon, just to prove that they were loyal. And under Emperor Diocletian, they actually issued a certificate to prove that they had done it. Only one group was exempt, and that was the Jewish nation. They were exempt because at one point in time, they had helped Julius Caesar. He, they helped him win and become in power, and he gave them special privileges. They were considered a national religion. Now, at first, the Christians enjoyed the same exemption because the Romans considered them to be part of the Jewish nation. But after a while, it became obvious that they weren't, so they lost their exemption, and that created a problem for them. The Christians just didn't fit in. For example, the Christians weren't comfortable with the Roman hospitals because in some places the priests would come in and perform religious rituals. The Christians weren't comfortable in the Roman educational system because they taught that there were many gods and they offered alternatives to how the world came from. They weren't comfortable with Roman entertainment because condemned men were forced to fight with each other to the death for the amusement of the crowds. And occasionally when a play called for a death scene, they actually killed a condemned criminal on stage to make it seem more realistic. Not only did the Christians have a different religion, they also had a different culture. They were countercultural. They were different. So they stuck out like a sore thumb, and before long, the rumors began to spread. People heard stories about Christians having these secret meetings where they, they ate human flesh and they drank human blood. Now, of course, it was just a complete misunderstanding. They were having a communion service. Okay? But you know how rumors spread. And they also heard that the Christians called each other brother and sister, and they went to love feast. You heard that? Yeah. Well, which is again, is just a communion service. All right. But the rumor mill said they were practicing incest, and it didn't take long before everyone hated the Christians. 
It was the period of the red horse, and it came to a head between the years 303 and 313 A.D. when the emperor Diocletian was pressured to eliminate the Christian faith. You see, what happened is there was a fire at his place, and the Christians got blamed for it. So Diocletian had them all dismissed from public office. He kicked them out of the government. He moved them from the army because he couldn't be sure they would be loyal. And for 10 years, the Christians suffered unbelievable persecution. But fortunately, it didn't last forever. Eventually, we see the red horse riding off the scene, and that brings us to our third horse. Let's go to Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6, where it says, And he opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. This rider, this, the rider on this horse has some scales, which means he's going to measure something. So what is he measuring? Now, I have to be honest. This verse kind of uh, makes me squirm a little bit. Because God is about to reveal our, the truth of our history. Let's read it. He says, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. See, this writer moves us into the next period of Earth's history, and it is a remarkable story. In the year 312 A.D., something amazing happened outside the city of Rome. Emperor Diocletian had uh, divided his kingdom into two halves. You had the east and the west, and each half had two rulers. The senior ruler was called Augustus, and the junior ruler was called Caesar. After Diocletian retired in 305 AD, the four rulers started to fight among themselves for control, and before long, we have a fifth ruler showing up on the scene in the city of Rome a guy by the name of Maximus, Maximus, and he was angry because he had gotten passed over for a promotion, but he managed to convince the Roman Senate to crown him as emperor. And before long, another ruler showed up outside the city by the name of Constantine to deal with him. Inside the city of Rome, everybody was getting nervous because Constantine was coming. Maximus, Maximus knew that he couldn't beat uh, Constantine in a fair fight, so he hid in the city, knowing that Constantine's men would feel uneasy about attacking the mother city. And to make people feel even more secure, he decided to throw a party. He invited everyone to a chariot race. But as soon as the race was over, somebody shouted, Hey, Maxentius, are you really afraid to go out and fight Constantine? Before long, someone else shouted the same thing. And then the whole crowd started ch chanting. It went what we would call as viral. We would say that Twitter lit up, wouldn't we? Yeah, and now Maxentius had no choice. He had to go out and fight Constantine, so he went to the Roman soothsayers, and he asked them if there were any old Roman prophecies, if they had any predictions. So they went and they checked their books, and they came back and they said, tomorrow the enemy of Rome will die. And that was good news because in his mind, Constantine was the enemy of Rome. Outside the city, someone told Constantine that Maxentius had a sign that he would be the winner, and an old prophecy guaranteed it, and that made Constantine's man a little nervous because, after all, they were about to attack the eternal city. So Constantine came up with his own sign. All right? It was an ancient pagan symbol known as the Chiro. It, it was the Greek letters, the C-H-I, which is kind of a C-H in Greek, which looks like an X. You see it up there? You see the X? And then the Rye uh, is kind of an R, 
but to us it looks like a P. These are, are the first two letters of the word Christ, so a lot of people assume that Constantine was using a Christian symbol. It also happens to be the first two letters of the word Christus, which is a word that means good luck or victory. It was an ancient pagan symbol that predates Christianity. Constantine had his men paint this chai row on their shields so they would have a sign of victory also. And on the next day, October 28, the armies clash and to make a long story short, Constantine wins. Maxentius actually gets knocked off his horse and drowns in the river. And when Constantine gets inside the city of Rome, he does something very, very unusual. Every other emperor, Roman emperor who had won, would climb the Capitoline Hill and offer a sacrifice to Jupiter. But Constantine didn't do that. And we suspect that the reason he didn't was because his mother was a Christian. And 12 years later, as Constantine is celebrating his empire, he suddenly embellishes the story. He tells the Christian historians that he actually saw the chai row up in the sky, and he heard a voice telling him, go and conquer in this sign. In other words, a decade later, he's saying the Christian God told him to conquer Rome using the sign of the cross. He was nominally accepting the Christian faith, even though he continued to kill members of his own family, and he refused to be baptized until his deathbed. He nominally accepts the Christian faith. He even gives the Lateran Palace to, as a gift to the Bishop of Rome, and he builds a church in honor of Peter on the Vatican Mountain. It was the original St. Peter's Basilica. And from this point on, the persecution is over. Constantine officially ends it with the Edict of Milan, and Rome becomes a Christianized empire. Constantine may have not converted himself, but he absolutely favored the Christian religion. It became popular, and for the first time, People started joining the Christian church as a way to gain favor with the emperor. If you wanted to climb the social ladder, you joined the Christian church. There was an, even an old story where Constantine marched his, some of his army through the Tiber River and declared them to be all baptized Christians. Do you know what you get when you march a thousand pagans through a river? You get wet pagans. The thing about Christianity is you can't make the decision for someone else. Now, this story might or might not be 100% true, but it does illustrate the complete reversal of Rome's attitude toward Christians. Christianity is now the favored religion. And this led to big problems because now you had this uncomfortable mix of people in the church. Some of these were, were sincere Christians. They were there because they believed that Jesus was the Son of God and that he died for their sins. But others were there for the benefits. The church became a blended institution and some of the passion that made the early church conquer the entire world began to disappear. Because Christians got comfortable. They didn't have to stand for anything anymore because calling yourself a Christian was easy. And then as the years went by, something terrible began to happen. You had these two groups inside the church. They began to clash with each other. Those who were part of the comfortable Christians but were really still pagans at heart, they started to resent the people over here who were practicing the biblical Christianity, and they pushed them, pushed them to the margins of the church. 
And eventually, if you differed from the emperor's official version of Christianity, a politicalized version of Christianity, this led to huge problems. At this point in time, the church stops changing the world, and the world starts changing the church. And even worse, when the Roman Empire stopped persecuting the Christians, the Christians started persecuting each other. We actually started killing each other over differences of opinion. So let me ask you, where did we learn that from? Huh? Did we get it from Jesus? Can you just imagine Jesus running a torture chamber? No, we didn't learn it from the Bible. We learned it from the Romans. We brought Roman-style politics right through the front doors of the church. And we did it, even though God warned us in more than one prophecy that it was going to happen. And then, as the years went by, we started doing something else that is still happening to this very day. And I'm embarrassed to admit it, it's still happening right here in North America. We started selling religion. Instead of preaching it, we started selling it. The Bible says that this writer would have something for sale. Remember, what was he selling? Food. And what is food? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I have food to eat which you do not know. These, this, those who were part of the new comfortable Christianity, but were still pagans at heart, they started to resent the people who were practicing Christianity, and they started punishing them. I think I pushed the wrong button here. All right. If you don't believe that Christianity isn't for sale, just turn on your television tomorrow morning. Listen to the radio, and you will see how Christians are still trying to earn a buck. The gospel is free. Jesus paid for it with his, with uh, paid for it for our salvation, and yet we are still selling it today. And of course, I know the church has to pay its bills, and of course, not everything can be given away, right? But Christians have no business getting rich off the gospel. As the Christian church started launching toward the dark ages, we cut off access to the Bible. A, a measure of wheat is barely enough to stay alive, and you definitely can't feed your family with it. And denarius, that equals to about a penny. All right? That, that was about, and that was a full day's wage back then. Okay? A full day's wage for a starvation diet. That was our church after we compromised. Fortunately, it was not the last horse. Revelation 6 says, And he opened the fourth seal, and I heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked and beheld a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him, and the power was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill and eat with, to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. The black horse was bad news, but the pale horse was worse. Pale is the color of death. If you were to drain all the lifeblood out of your body, you would turn pale. And as the church moved into the dark ages, that is exactly what happened. People stopped reading their Bibles. We lost track of the message. The mission of the church grounded to a halt, and we replaced missions with war. Our passion for Christ became all but extinct. It was a terrible time, and if you read your European history, you know what I'm talking about. Of course, there were always small groups of faithful Christians who stayed true to the Word of God. People like the Waldensians in North Italy. They spent their lives hidden away in the mountains, 
copying the scriptures and by hand and smuggling them all over Europe. That is until the organized church found out about it and then they started to kill them off. However, there has always been a few groups keeping the light of the gospel alive, but most of Christianity was tragically dead. Bible prophecy is completely honest about what you and I would do. We persecuted each other and our church was dead and God holds up a mirror to show us the painful truth. But you notice that the pale horse didn't last forever, did it? Now, there's another seal, but there's not another horse. But there is another seal. Unfortunately, a lot of people, when they come to the end of the horses, they assume that the prophecy is finished. And, but they finish it with the four horses, but there is a fifth seal, right? And the sixth seal shows us how desperate the situation would become. Go back to Revelation 6 with verses 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see, God saw how bad the situation was. He hears the cries of his people, the ones who are trying to stay faithful. How much longer, God? How much longer? And have you ever wondered, doesn't God see our pain and suffering? Doesn't he see how we're hurting? Yes, he does. He sees everything, every single tear you have ever shed. Listen to the words of David in Psalms 56, 8. He says, you numbered my wanderings. You put my tears into your bottle, and are they not in your book? The truth is, God keeps track of everything. He sees everything, and he sees you. He sees every tear you shed. He sees every sleepless night, and he has a promise for you. His kingdom is coming, and he's going to make everything right. And under the fifth seal, God starts making things right. People start standing up for Bible truth, and suddenly the printing press is invented, and now everyone can have access to the Bible, and brave people start to recapture the spirit of the early church. People like Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Calvin, Tyndall, the embers of the gospel are now fanned across Europe, and it sets the stage for the sixth seal. Now follow me closely here. So far, we have come down through the ages of time, through the dark ages, and we've come to about the 1700s. Let's listen what Revelation 6 says, 12, verses 12 and 13. He said, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth and hair of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Now pay attention to the events that are listed here under the sixth seal. All right? Because they're, they're listed in a very specific order. You've got a great earthquake. You've got the, the sun that goes dark and the moon turns red. And then the stars fall from heaven in that very order. That order is very important. Do you know why? Because you find those same events in that same order several times in the Bible. Yeah, that's right. They're listed in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and Joel chapter 2. And it's always in the same order every single time. Do you know why that is? Because that is is exactly how it happened. I'm going to show you something that our great-great-grandparents in the Christian faith knew. It's something that all Christians used to know, but for, for some reason, now that we're down to the final generations living on planet Earth, we just stopped talking about it. 
In the year 1755, the city of Lisbon suddenly experienced one of the most devastating earthquakes in history. The city was utterly destroyed, the, and the whole world was talking about it. Even though it happened in Europe, there were cities in North Africa that were flattened because of it. They felt it in the city of Strasbourg, more than a thousand miles away. It disturbed the rivers and lakes up in Scandinavia, and it created a tidal wave all the way in the Caribbean, including those of you from Jamaica. They felt the tidal wave. Okay, it was a very big deal. It wiped out the city of Lisbon, and the whole world was talking about it. And when you go back and you read what the people said about the earthquake, you understand that they saw it as a prophetic sign. They recognized it as the earthquake of Revelation 6, and that's because our forefathers completely understood the language of prophecy, and they also knew what to expect next. What was the next thing supposed to come? Do you remember? The sun goes dark, right? And sure enough, that is exactly what happened. In May of 1780, the sky suddenly went dark in the middle of the day. Animals actually started coming back to the barns. It was so dark, they say that you couldn't see a sheet of paper held out an arm's length away from you. So to this day, we still really don't know what caused it. Some people say it was a forest fire in Canada. Others say it was something else. The truth is, we really don't know. But we do know that it happened. It was suddenly so dark that the state assembly in Connecticut actually stopped conducting business and people started shouting, it's the end of the world. Why? Because they had read Bible prophecy and they were expecting it. It was not a small event. Even the famous astrologer Sir William Herschel talked about it. He said the dark day in North America was one of those wonderful phenomena which will always be read about with interest, but which philosophy is at a loss to explain. Philosophy may be at a loss to explain it, but the Bible isn't. Centuries before it happened, the disciple John saw it, and it happened exactly the way he predicted. The first sign, the great earthquake, happened in the old world, and the, this sign happened in the new world. And it still had impact. It had such an impact that people were panicking because they assumed that the end of the world had come. And what was supposed to happen right with the dark sky? The moon was supposed to turn to blood, right? Well, that same week, this report came out in the news, New York newspaper. It said, we have seen the dark day, and though I didn't see it, I was informed that the moon looked like blood the following night. Wow. Now listen to what else he says, because it proves that people were following through with their Bibles. He says, it seems to me that the next sign should be the falling of the stars. Wow. Now, why could he say something like that? It's because he knew about Revelation 6. Our great-grandparents used to know this passage, and they knew what to expect next. So, did it happen? Did the stars start falling? They sure did. On November 13, 1833, the Leonid, Leonid meteor shower suddenly passed through our atmosphere. Now, the Leonid shower happens every year. In fact, you can go out in November, and you can still watch it to this day. Normally, you'll see 30 to 40 stars falling in about an hour. But in 1833, the sky came unclued, and they estimate there were 250,000 stars falling per hour. That equates to 1,000 or 4,166 a minute, or 70 stars every single second. It was so bright that the people started waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Listen to this eyewitness account. 
It says someone on looking out the window observed that it was almost bright daylight. That can't be, answered another, for it's scarcely three o'clock. I can't help what the clock says, replied the first speaker. My eyes cannot deceive me. It's almost broad daylight. Look for yourself. Someone else said, I heard one of the children cry out in a voice expressive of alarm. Come to the door, Father. The world is surely coming to an end. And another exclaimed, See, the whole heavens are on fire. All the stars are falling. These cries brought us into the open yard to gaze upon the grandest and most beautiful scene my eyes have ever beheld. It did appear to as if every star had left its mornings and was drifting rapidly in a westerly direction, leaving behind a track of light which remained visible for several seconds. Do you know who else saw this event? A famous man. We call him Abraham Lincoln. Honest Abe. He was a young man staying at the deacon's house, and this is how he recorded it. One night, I was roused from my sleep by a rap on the door, and I heard the deacon's voice exclaiming, Arise, Abraham, for the day of judgment has come. And I sprang from my bed and I rushed to the window and I saw the stars falling in great showers. This was a huge impact and most importantly public interest in Bible prophecy began to swell. All of these events, the earthquake, the dark day, the blood, the moon, the falling of the stars, they all happened on a massive scale that got global attention. They all happen in exactly the right place, exactly in places where people were studying their Bible prophecy after the dark ages was over. They all happened in the right order, and they all happened right on schedule. Everybody knew what was going on, and do you know what that means? It means that the seals number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 have already happened. It's already in the past. And that means that you and I are bumping up against seal number seven right now. Let's look at that one. Revelation 6 verses 14 through 17. It says, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of God. And in verse chapter 8, verse 1, it says, and when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for the space of about a half an hour. Let me ask you a question. Why would there be silence in heaven? It's because heaven is empty. Nobody is there. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him, then he shall sit on the throne of his glory. When Jesus comes, everybody's going to join him. All the holy angels with him because it is the biggest, most exciting event in the history of the universe. And nobody wants to be left out. It is really going to happen. Do you know why God gave us Bible prophecy? Some people think it was to scare us. But that's not the case at all. God gave us, shows us the future to give us hope. Have you ever driven in a blizzard? I, I know you may not have many blizzards here in, in Dallas, but uh, I have. And, and sometimes the snow can get so bad that, that you can hardly see the road right in front of you. And you can't tell where the road ends and the ditch begins. And, and so you're driving slowly, and your heart is pounding. Your knuckles are white with fear. And then suddenly, you see it. The glow of your hometown. And you know that in just a matter of minutes, you're going to be home, warm, and with people you love. If you've ever been on a trip 
long trip with your kids, they always ask one question. How much longer, Dad? How much longer, Mom? You've had that question, right? Well, right now, you and I are the kids in the back seat. And God knows that we need to know how much longer. So he goes down through the corridor of time and he turns on lights so we'll know when Jesus is close. That is why we have Bible prophecy. Would you stand with me while we pray? Father in heaven, today we believe that you care. It's obvious from the way you've illuminated history that even before it has happened, it's obvious from the way you sometimes even lovingly show us where we are. Today we can see it. We are getting close, and we long to see you, Jesus, face to face. Today we choose to believe that Jesus is coming, and the reason he is coming is because he loves us. We want to be ready. Today, we choose to be ready. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.